Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 13. Romans 7, starting in verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Let me pray. Lord, we come before you and, and ask for your help in understanding this difficult text and understanding the difficult Christian life that we live and the battle that we're in and the confusion that often springs up. Lord, because of our constant battle with sin and our realization that you are our God, our King, that you have given us your spirit, that you have changed us through the gospel, and yet we still struggle with sin and are often confused by that. And Lord, I ask that as we look at this text, as we understand where the Apostle Paul was as a Christian and the struggle he experienced, as we understand the experience that all of us um, struggle, Lord, we pray that you would give us clarity in understanding your word and how it applies to us, that our minds would understand it rightly and our hearts would be repentant before you and rejoicing in you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I think we all know that as believers, we're often trapped in sin, right? We know that as believers, we can be trapped in sin. A lot of times we deny that that can happen. We don't like to think it can happen because um, we want to think that if I'm struggling with sin, I must not be a believer. In fact, when I get carried away with my sin... It can't be true. I can't be a believer. I think of pastors who've fallen. I'm, I'm not talking about the crazy, you know, wacko television preachers, not that they all are, who, you know, are the big, huge hairdos and, and the Italian suits and the whole thing that are making all kinds of money hand over fist and, and then they're falling into sin, which doesn't seem to surprise almost anybody. Those aren't the guys I'm talking about. The guys I'm talking about are the respectable preachers, you know, the ones who are preaching the gospel, preaching the word, sacrificing, going after it. And all of a sudden we find out that they were having an affair. And people are devastated. They're caught up in some sin and they've disqualified themselves from the ministry. And I've heard in those instances people asking questions like, well, are they really a believer? Were they really ever a believer? Or are they just faking it all this time? Have you guys ever heard those discussions? Were they just a phony the whole time? Or, or is he, was he a legitimate believer? Maybe he was just an immature believer who got rocketed up to a ministry position before he should have. Was he a mature believer? Could a mature believer do that? And we struggle with the fact that that could ever be the case. Could I, I'm not in ministry if, if I'm speaking for many of you, could I be a mature believer and still constantly be struggling with this sin? Is that possible? And we like to think it's not. We like to think, in fact, it's abnormal that we would struggle with sin in that way. That it shouldn't happen. What about the victorious Christian life? 
What happened to that? Well, Simon Peter was a man. You know, Simon Peter, the Apostle Paul, or Peter, excuse me, the Apostle Peter, was a man who was always known for his boldness. The Apostle Peter was known for his boldness. Peter would preach the gospel when no one else would. He was also known for his ability to stick his foot in his mouth. In the same scenes, Peter would be like, you're the Lord. And the next scene, telling the Lord, no, you could never do that. He was at his height and at his low all in the same day. The apostle Peter, the guy who publicly was used as a tool of Satan to thwart God's purposes. The apostle Peter, the guy who was who publicly denounced belief in Christ. The Apostle Peter, the guy who publicly taught a false gospel and was rebuked for it. That guy was a mature Christian, wasn't he? Caught up generally, not in the sin of drinking too much or the sin of pornography or the sin of adultery, but generally caught up in the sin of wanting to be sovereign in life and wanting to be well thought of by men. And I got to tell you, I can't think of worse sins than publicly denying Christ, being used as a tool of Satan to try to stop or thwart the Messiah and denying the gospel publicly. I can't think of worse sins than those. That's the Apostle Peter. Was he a believer or an unbeliever? He's a believer, wasn't he? Was he a mature believer? Yeah, he was. And yet he was still caught in this kind of sin. See, in contemporary evangelicalism, what we'll say if we see somebody like Peter, like me, like you, if we see one of us and we're struggling with sin in a continuous way, we'll say, we'll say one of four things generally. One, That guy's an unbeliever, right? He must not be a believer. He can't be the real deal and be doing that. Imagine if you, imagine if you knew Peter and you saw this great faithful ministry and then all of a sudden one day you saw him denying the gospel because he wanted to be liked by the Judaizers in Galatia. You would think to yourself, any man who will deny the gospel and pervert the gospel to the extent that the Apostle Paul had to say of him, may he be eternally condemned if he continues that way. Any man that's that must not be the real deal, wouldn't you? If you didn't already know the whole story about Peter, you would, wouldn't you? Any guy who gets caught up in adultery must be faking it. He probably wasn't a Christian to begin with. That's one of the positions Christians often take. A second one that we see is this idea that, he, well, he's a carnal Christian. You guys have heard of this term, carnal Christian? What that means is that he believes in Jesus as Savior, but not as Lord. So he's some kind of schizophrenic. Um, and, and what it means is that it's okay if he never experiences any fruit in his whole life. That category of person doesn't exist. There isn't such a thing as a person who's married to Christ, united to Christ through faith, who never experiences fruit. In fact, Paul very explicitly says that when you're not united to Christ through faith, you do experience good fruit. You bear good fruit. Why? Because he's the vine and you're in him. And if you're in the vine, you bear good fruit because fruit comes from the vine, not from the branch. There's no such thing as a carnal Christian. Now, there are Christians who are carnal in their behavior Whenever we act fleshly, out of the flesh, according to the flesh, and walk into sin, we are behaving in a carnal manner. But we're not carnal Christians who just have Jesus as a Savior and not as a Lord and who will never experience good fruit. We're just believers who are acting sinfully. The third category is that he must be an immature believer in rebellion. We see a sinner like that and we think they must be an immature believer in rebellion in some way. And then the fourth one is that he's a mature believer who's in sin. That's Peter. Simon Peter was a mature believer 
in sin. Paul, in Romans 7, 14-25, is talking about himself as a mature believer who's caught up in his own sin, who's struggling with it. It happens to mature believers. You see, mature believers struggle with sin. And it's the mature believer who recognizes how sinful he is. How many of you guys experience that? The more you grew in faith in Christ, the more you grow in faith in Christ, the more abundantly clear your sin becomes. I've never met any mature believer who says to themselves, I'm just thankful I've grown in Christ because I hardly sin at all anymore. I'm doing really well. Never met that person. We acknowledge this is true, but often question our salvation every time we're in the midst of a battle with sin, don't we? We question it every time we're in the midst of a battle with sin. We act as if it's abnormal, as if it's abnormal to struggle with sin as believers. That shouldn't be, we think. As if we were somehow the only one or we're somehow lacking as if a real believer wouldn't be struggling the way I'm struggling right now. When the fact is that real believers are the only ones who are struggling with sin. Unbelievers already lost they gave up. There's no battle for them. It's real believers who sense the struggle or the battle. If that's you, then if you're one of these people who struggles with, it must just be me. Something must be wrong with me. I must be abnormal. Then this section of Romans is going to be helpful to you because you're going to find out that you're normal. Maybe it's discouraging and maybe it's encouraging. Here's why it would be discouraging. The discouraging part is, you're just like the Apostle Paul. That's the discouraging part. Because you realize if the Apostle Paul struggled with this and I'm normal, then that means maybe I'm always going to struggle like this. The encouraging part is you're just like the Apostle Paul. Right? So as we've been going through this, we see the battle is the normal thing in the Christian life. Paul's been establishing in this chapter, in chapter 7, Paul has been establishing that the law is good. It's been establishing that the law is good. Because he said, Jesus saves us from the law. He realizes that by saying that Jesus saves us from the law, he has to then go back and say, but because he's saving us by the law, it doesn't mean the law is bad. The law is still good. People might start to question, well, is the law any good? Paul says, yes, it's still good. It's good for unbelievers, because, and in verse 7 of chapter 7 through verse 12, he establishes good for unbelievers, actually through verse 13. It's good for unbelievers. Why? Because it shows them that they're sinful. It excites more sin in them, which shows them that even when they see the law, they want to sin even more, which shows them how exceedingly sinful they are, which causes them to realize their need for Jesus Christ. And so it's good. Because it's holy and righteous and good. Because it reflects the character of God. And when we see ourselves in comparison to the law, we recognize that we are not holy and righteous and good. And we flee to Christ because He is holy and righteous and good. And the law is good is what Paul is saying. It's good for unbelievers. Now he wants to go on and show that the law is good even in the life of the believer. Even though in the life of the believer, the law continues... To be something the believer can't keep. Even though. And what Paul wants to say is the very fact that you struggle with keeping it. The very fact that you want to keep it and fail demonstrates that you know it's good. You know the law is good or else you wouldn't be fighting to keep it. Even though you're failing. What Paul wants to say is just because you're failing doesn't mean the law is bad. What it means that you're failing is that you're bad. Not the law. You're a sinner. The law isn't sin. The law is good. It doesn't bring death to you. Your sin does. He wants to establish that. Look at verse 7 or verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? 
By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. See, he wanted to show that the law did not bring death to anyone. Sin did. Sin did. In fact, in order to show how powerful sin is, Paul goes on to show that even a believer can't keep the law. So what Paul's saying is the reason that this whole deal with the law is screwed up is not because there's something wrong with the law. It's because there's something wrong with us. It's because we're sinners. And sin is so powerful that it wrecks the life of an unbeliever and he needs Christ. And sin is so powerful that it even causes problems for believers. It's exceedingly sinful. The law shows us. The law shows us that our sin is exceedingly sinful. That's what Paul's saying. Well, we all accept that we can't be saved by keeping the law. We all accept that. I know I can't be saved by keeping the law because Christians have been taught that one over and over and over again. I only can be saved by believing in Jesus Christ. However, most of us think that we're capable of keeping the law now that we are saved. I can't be saved by keeping the law because I'm incapable of keeping it as an unbeliever. I can't keep it. And so I've got to be saved by Jesus Christ. However, once I'm saved by Jesus Christ, then I'll be capable of keeping the law. No. Paul says you're not capable of keeping it. As an unbeliever or as a believer, you're not capable of keeping the law. Now that Jesus saved me, I think I can keep the law and I can grow in holiness. And that if I don't, there's something wrong with me that's abnormal from what's wrong with everyone else. It's just sin. You're a sinner. You couldn't keep the law as an unbeliever and you can't keep it as a believer. The law just continues to demonstrate that we're exceedingly sinful. That's what Paul wants to show. If we think that somehow, once Jesus saves us, we're able to keep the law on our own, we have a fundamental misunderstanding of Christianity. A fundamental misunderstanding of Christianity. If we think, now that he saved me, I can keep the law, then Paul wants you to understand that the law cannot be kept because we're still sinners even when we're saved. While we've been born again and we've been made spiritually new, we still live in the flesh. We still have these bodies of death. We're still sinners. We continue to struggle with sin and at times are constantly frustrated with our inability to keep the law. Is that your guys' experience? Experience that, believers? Romans seven fourteen. look there. Paul goes from the past tense to the present he says this for we know for we know the law is spiritual but i speaking of himself as a christian i am of the flesh sold under sin i do not understand my own actions anybody ever experience that for i do not do what i want But I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. Notice that Paul says he doesn't understand his own actions. He's saying that his own frustration with his inability to keep the law demonstrates that he knows the law is good. Do you hear that? I know the law is good. How does he say that? The law, we know the law is spiritual. But I'm the problem, right? Sold under sin. I do what I do not want, but I do the very thing, or I do not do what I, excuse me, I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. He hates his sin. He knows the law is good, but he keeps sinning. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. The law is good. It's not the problem. I'm the problem. I'm unable to keep the law is what Paul is saying. 
And when I try to keep it on my own, what happens is I experience slavery to it, to my sin. I think we've all experienced this kind of frustration, haven't we? Let me give you some examples. You set out, you resolve to stop something. I resolve to stop blowing up in anger at my spouse or my children or people I know. I resolve to do that. And then after I resolve to do it, what do I keep on doing? And I hate that I do it. Has there experienced that? Thankfully, by the grace of God, I don't have an anger problem, but I know people who do, and they hate that they do it when they're believers. They don't rejoice in it. They hate it. And yet they continue in it. And they struggle. And they resolve to stop, and it continues. People resolve to stop lying, especially in the insidious way that most of us know is exaggeration where they want people to think well of them. So they exaggerate. They hate that they do it. Believers I know. And yet they keep on doing it. Gossiping. The plague of the church, as far as I'm concerned, as far as keeping unity in the body, the plague Every time you open your mouth in gossip, realize that you're spreading death to people. And we hate that, that we do it. I was in the vehicle with, Teresa and I went with Bo and Jenny on a trip and uh, down to USC game. And Jenny said one of the most insightful things I've heard somebody say in a long time. We're driving down the road and and, uh, we were talking about someone. I don't think negatively. No, no, we actually, we weren't in the car. We were in the restaurant. I don't think negatively, but she started to feel like kind of bad about it. And so she said to us, sorry to out you, Jenny. She says to us, she goes, I've got to stop talking about this. Why? Because I'm enjoying it too much, right? And I realized, oh, isn't that how we are? We start to feel like I'm enjoying, and what she enjoyed is I'm starting to feel better than them. You know you're gossiping when that happens, right? That's insightful. When you're starting, even if the conversation didn't start out as gossip, even if it started out with all the pure intentions in the world, as soon as your heart starts to recognize that in some way you're feeling exalted, you've just transitioned from a healthy conversation to, at least in your own life, a sinful one. To be able to recognize that instantly and stop it, that's what we want to be able to do all the time. But guess what happens? We set out to recognize it instantly and stop it. And then what do we end up doing? We continue to do it. And then we hate it about ourselves. We become jealous of others. Some people struggle with jealousy. And they hate it. Lusting after other women. Watching pornography. I know too many men who are struggling with lust after other women. And it's a good thing that they're struggling and haven't given up. They hate it about themselves. I've never met with a group of mature Christian guys who's sitting around going, A, I've stopped lusting. And B, even though I really haven't stopped lusting, I'm kind of enjoying it. Never. Most of the guys I talk to hate it about themselves. They know they're going to continue to do it, and they hate it. When I was at Talbot, I thought, you know, for sure, at Talbot Center, I thought, for sure, I would never, I would get to this point in life where I would never lust again. It would never be a temptation. I thought it happened as soon as about the time your hair started getting gray. Um, so I was hoping for early gray. But the, uh, I was down there, and I was sitting in a class with a professor. His name's Dr. Robert Sosi one of the great um, theologians of our time. And he says to me in an accountability group, and, and uh, you know, there were several of us in there, and he says, well, could you guys pray for me? And we said, why is that? This, this guy's 70 plus years old. I said, why, Dr. Sosi? Well, it's spring here at Viola, and all the girls start wearing less clothing. <laughs> and I, I said, Dr. Sosi, what you just said to me is the most depressing thing I've heard in weeks. <laughs> 
Well, he's like, why is that? I said, I was certain that by your age, I'd have slayed this problem. Apparently not. We hate it about ourselves. Drinking too much. Failing to serve our spouse the way we know we should. Holding a grudge against those who've wronged us. Being fiscally irresponsible. Failing to discipline our children lovingly and in my case, as consistently as I should. Falling into sexual immorality. Seeking the approval of others. Being lazy at work. I could go on and on and on, couldn't I? Of sins that we hate about ourselves but continue to struggle with. And we resolve to stop. And where do we end up? Right back in it, don't we? No matter how hard you work at these issues, you don't seem to be able to stop and you end up hating the very thing that you're doing and doing the very thing that you hate. Paul became frustrated with this. He's frustrated with this. Do you hear that when he says, the thing I want to do, I don't do. And the thing I hate, I do that. Do you hear his frustration? This mature believer wrote two-thirds of the books of the New Testament. Planted countless churches. But he recognizes that because of indwelling sin, it's impossible for him to overcome his sin on his own. It's impossible for him to keep the law on his own. He recognizes that. Look at what he says in verse 17. So now, it is no longer... I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. See, Paul recognizes that he is born again. And a new creation in Christ. He recognizes that. But at the same time, that he's still indwelt by sin. That's why he says, it's not I who do it. As one who's a new creation in Christ, and also indwelt by sin, he's the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. That's what he's saying. Paul's not dodging his responsibility in saying, it's not I who do it but sin that dwells within me. What he's recognizing is that he's a new creation in Christ. And that he's not sinning carelessly or irrespective of the fact that it offends God and that it's wrong as he used to do as an unbeliever. It is not Paul in the truest sense that's sinning. It's him in the flesh that's sinning. That's what Paul recognizes about himself. I, I see this in need to understand this in marital counseling. I will talk to couples, and they all have short-term memory, by the way, and, but, but think that they have the most crystal clear picture of what the other person has done in every detail, in every situation, for their entire marriage. They always know that they are right about every situation. And the other party always knows that they're right about every situation, and that's why you have a hard time resolving it, because they're like this. No, I'm right. No, you're right. And they have total recall of everything they think the other person has done to them. And so as soon as you say to them, hey, trust the Lord because this person's a believer. And I'm talking about counseling believers here. This person's a believer. And when they're caught up in sin, that's not really them. And God can change them by the power of his Holy Spirit so they don't live that way anymore. He can do that. But it's going to be a battle. And it's going to be a struggle. And, it, and they sit there and they listen for a little bit. And they go, okay, okay, okay. But they're going to do it again. You're right, they are. They're going to do it again. But doesn't that prove that they haven't changed? No, it doesn't. It doesn't prove it. And I've got to walk through with couples about the fact that while this person is working on this, they're not becoming sinlessly perfect when the counseling session is over. 
and they're going to fall back into their sin again. Falling back into their sin again is not an indication that they're not growing or changing in Christ. It's indication that they're a sinner in the middle of a spiritual battle. But what couples want to do is they want to say every time that offense comes up, there's no change. This person could not sin that way for months and months and months. And the one time they finally do, you didn't change at all. What do you mean I didn't change? You're just doing the exact same thing you always did. Hey, I haven't done it for months. I'm growing in Christ. I'm sorry. I reckon it doesn't matter. You're still the same. Because we don't believe what Paul's saying here. That a regenerate person is, is reborn. They're a new creation. And it's not them doing it in the truest sense. It's sin that dwells within them. doesn't mean they're not responsible for their actions. They are. But there's this battle happening. That's why he says this in Romans seven eighteen. Look at verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. And look what he says next. He wants to modify what he means by that. That is in my flesh. Right? Nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. What he's saying is not that he knows the Holy Spirit dwells in him. And that's good. But nothing good dwells in his flesh in this body of death. Nothing. It just wants to sin. My hands, my eyes, my ears, my tongue, they just, my mind, they just all want to sin. My heart. And it's the spirit that's changed me that also at the same time that all this body of death wants to do is sin, at the same time, I rejoice in the law and I know it's right and I want to do what's right. And I'm in this fight And I'm losing because I'm trying to do it on my own. That's what he says. In fact, he says that sin's dwelling in him. How is it dwelling in him? It's like an unwelcome house guest, isn't it? You guys ever had a house guest that's unwelcome? Show up at the door. In this case, the unwelcome house guest of sin has come in to stay for a while. In fact, he's taken over the house. And he was not only moved in, but taken over. And he's not only moved in and taken over, he's declared war on the resident of the house. (laughs) What sin is being pictured as here. It's like an unwelcome house guest that's come in, taken over, and declared war on you. And he recognizes this war. Look what he says in verse 21. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. That's a principle. He doesn't mean the law in the Old Testament. He's talking about a principle there. Find to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Hear this battle? I'm in this war. I want to do what's right, and yet sin is is waging war from within me, in my members. And I keep getting taken captive. Paul says he delights in the law. He's been regenerated. He's been born again. His heart of stone has become a heart of flesh. And so now he delights in it. At the same time, he's in a spiritual battle with indwelling sin. In the Old Testament, see, I think what happens is we don't often understand the difference in the Old Testament and New Testament and what God does in the New Covenant. In the Old Testament, the way God worked with His people is very similar to now with one great exception. And here's what's similar first. What's similar is that God said, you can't keep the law, you're sinners. However, I'm going to give you the law to show you're sinners and you need me. And I'm also going to give you a sacrificial system to point forward to your need for the Messiah for your need for Christ. And so you trust in the coming Messiah and you're saved. But you can't do that on your own. So the Spirit would work to regenerate them so they were born again. That happened in the Old Testament. Old Testament believers in the coming Messiah were born again. That's why Jesus says to Nicodemus, why don't you know this Nicodemus, Pharisee? When he comes to him and says, you've got to be born again. And Nicodemus is like, what do you mean? And Jesus says to him, you're a teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? Of course you should. Rebirth happened in the Old Testament. 
people delighted in the law of God in the Old Testament. It's all over the Psalms. Delighting in the law of God. However, what was different is that in the Old Testament, believers were not indwelt by the Holy Spirit. They were regenerate. Their hearts were made new. They went from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh by the powerful work of God in their lives. They desired to keep the law through faith in Christ. They were saved or the coming Christ. They were saved. However, they were not indwelt by the Holy Spirit. This Holy Spirit dwelt in the tabernacle or the temple and they went there. And when Jesus arrives, it says in John, interestingly enough, that The Word became flesh and dwelt, that is, tabernacled among us. The Spirit of God was no longer dwelling in the temple, was now dwelling in the person of Christ. And then he says, later on, after he dies and resurrects, that those who through faith are united to him, that is, the church, the Spirit now dwells in them. What has changed the New Testament is that not only are we regenerate like the Old Testament people were, not only therefore born again and want to keep the law, not only are we like them in that we are saved by faith in the Messiah, but but we also have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. That's new in the new covenant. That's new. The indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. But we think that what's new is to actually love the law, to be born again, to have a heart of flesh. But it's not. It's the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And what Paul's talking about here, what Paul's talking about here is this. I delight in the law of God, but I can't keep it. Have you heard Paul say anything yet about the Holy Spirit? Not one thing, has he? Because what Paul's talking about is he's talking about the mature believer who's making the mistake, the error, the sin of trying to walk according to the flesh and be good on his own. And even the believer that bears bad fruit. It's not until chapter eight that he starts dealing with the believer who walks according to the spirit. What's new is the indwelling spirit. Paul has been talking about his desire as a Christian man to do what is right, to keep the law and about his attempts to do so in his own power without the indwelling Holy Spirit. However, because of the indwelling sin, he's unable to. Look at verse 4 real quick in chapter 7, so you can clarify this a little bit. Likewise, my brothers, you've also died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were still living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now that we're released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. There's a new life of the Spirit that we serve in. And when the indwelling Holy Spirit, when we're walking by the Spirit, we bear fruit for God. That only happens for believers. When we're walking according to the flesh, we bear fruit for death. That happens both for unbelievers and for believers. That's why Paul can say this. Look at Galatians chapter 5. Just keep your finger there. Galatians chapter 5, which comes after, you know, Romans and 1st and 2nd Corinthians and Galatians. He says this, but at verse 16, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. Desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Do you hear that? But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident sexual immorality. This is what happens. This is the fruit that happens when you try to walk according to the flesh, even as a believer. When you try to do it on your own. The works of the law are evident. What are they? Or the flesh, sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. 
I warn you, as I warned before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That is not a characteristic of a believer. Yet believers end up doing it because they try to walk according to the flesh. And look what he goes on to say in verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Why does he have to command those who live by the Spirit to walk by the Spirit? If the Spirit gave us new life and indwelt us and united us to Christ, why then do we even need to be commanded to walk by it? By him, I should say. Why? Because he knows that our tendency, because of the indwelling of sin, will be to run back to trying to do things according to our own power again. He knows that. That's why he cries, this, cries out this, verse 24 of chapter 7. That's why he cries this out. Wretched man that I am. That's the cry of a mature Christian man. I don't know any unbelievers who cry out about themselves because of their sin. Wretched man that I am. I don't know any immature Christians who really cry that out with gusto. This is the cry of the mature Christian. Wretched man that I am. Because the more we grow in Christ, the more we recognize our inability and our sin. And our need Who will deliver me from this body of death? Future tense. And look at his answer. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. You know who will deliver me from this body of death? Jesus will. He's talking about the future here. Paul's saying this. I'm wretched. I'm in this battle forever. How will this ever change? Who's going to deliver me from this body of death so that this war will end? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He is going to deliver me. When he returns, he is going to deliver me. Then it will be as it should be. That's what Paul's saying. He understands his future hope in Christ. And he goes on, he says this last phrase, summarizing his, our attempts to live the Christian life on our own. Summarizing our attempts to live our Christian life on our own. He says this, the end of verse 20, 25. So then... I myself serve the law of God with my mind. I know the truth. And I love it. And I rejoice in it. I serve it with my mind. But with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. This is a man trying to live the Christian life on his own. Without the power of the indwelling spirit. That's what he's trying to do. That's why you have to have Romans 7, 14 through 25... And Romans 8, 1 through about 17 together to get the whole picture. You can't separate those two things. You want the experience of the Christian? There's the Christian who's living according to the flesh, trying to do it on his own and keep the law on his own, and is constantly frustrated and crying out, wretched man that I am. And at the same, that same person who other times in life is walking by the Spirit and keeping the law and rejoicing in what God is doing in them. That person is the same person in Paul's mind. That's why we have to have these two texts together. I want to give you six quick observations, and these are quick. Quick observations that that I want you to understand about the Christian life, the law, and sin. Here they are. One... The mature Christian is still indwelt by sin. The mature Christian is still indwelt by sin. You have to keep that in mind. Just because you're mature in Christ does not mean that you're not indwelt by sin. And when we walk after the flesh, not the spirit, the power of sin reasserts itself, doesn't it? Second, the mature Christian should keep God's law should keep God's law. We can't just throw out the law because our sin leads us to violate it. We should keep it. 
Never is the law overthrown for Christians. Never. In fact, Jesus didn't say I came to abolish. He said the exact opposite. I didn't come to abolish the law, but to what? Fulfill it. Third, the mature Christian is unable to keep God's law. The mature Christian is unable to keep God's law. He says that first in in verse 18 when he says this of himself. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. And chapter 8 verse 3 says this. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. And in verse 7 and 8. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. We're unable to keep the law because of indwelling sin. Fourth, the mature Christian is, until his death or resurrection, in a spiritual war. The mature Christian is until either you die or Jesus comes back and resurrects you, whichever happens first. In my case, I'm hoping for resurrection. I don't want to have to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. So come on, Jesus, right? Until that point, you're in a spiritual war. You're in a war. I keep hearing about the victorious Christian life. Let me say this. There is no victorious Christian life this side of eternity. Hear that? None. It's a sham. It doesn't happen. Paul doesn't have to write Ephesians 6 and talk about the spiritual war you're in if there's victory. Victory assumes that a battle has ended, doesn't it? Victory assumes a war is over. Paul uses war metaphors all the time. And when he talks about the Christian life, he constantly talks about it being a war. You may win battles. You might win your battle. You might have victory in your battle over drugs or your battle over porn or your battle over alcohol or your battle over anger. Or your... But then what happens is the war just moves to a new front. Right? So now I've won my battle over porn, but now I've got to battle with pride because I'm not looking at porn like all my friends. Right? Whatever it is, the war just moves to a new front. Total victory happens when you close your eyes in death or when you resurrect whichever comes first. Paul understands this and says it over and over again. Five, the mature Christian must live by the Spirit if he hopes to grow in holiness and even have a shred of victory. The mature Christian must live by the Spirit if he hopes to grow in holiness and even have a shred of victory. That's stated more than once, but Paul states it most clearly in Galatians chapter 3. And I want to read this real quick. You don't have to turn there. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? You hear what's happening there? The Galatians said, we began by the Spirit, we were saved by the Spirit, but we're going to perfect ourselves to the flesh. We're going to do it on our own. Paul says here, don't be fools. Who's bewitched you? It has to be through the Spirit. How do you grow in the Spirit? Being in the Word, prayer corporate worship, other believers encouraging you to look to him. It's all about trust. That's why Paul can say, I'm crucified with Christ and yet I live. Not I, but Christ who lives within me. And the life I live, I now live by faith in the one who loved me and gave himself for me. What's he saying? I just keep trusting in Jesus. That's how I'm changed. That's the spirit-filled life. Six, the mature Christian should hope in the gospel. The mature Christian should hope in the gospel. That's why he says in 725, he makes this statement in verse 25. 
Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Where's Paul's hope? In the gospel. That's why he says in chapter 8, verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's why he ends this chapter starting with verse 31. What then of chapter 8, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge, any charge, against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You guys hear that? Where's Paul's hope? The gospel. And that's where ours should be. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and its truth. We thank you for the powerful work that you do in us. We know that we need to depend on you. Lord, we know that apart from you, we can do nothing. We know that we were saved by a work of your spirit. And Lord, we confess that we so often try to go back and live by our own flesh. And Lord, we know we can't do it. We know we can't live the Christian life on our own. We know that it is your spirit indwelling us empowering us, Lord, that we are able to do any of this. And Lord, so we pray that you would work powerfully by your might in us for your glory.